0: Well, welcome everyone as we move into our sermon for this morning and obviously we're continuing on with our mega series, the Meet God Almighty mega series where we're seeking the face of God through the scriptures and finding the face of Jesus. So we're trying to strip away any preconceptions that we have of who God is. We're trying to deal with what the text says of God fairly well honestly, not flicking over things, which is an interesting thing when you decide to go through the whole Old Testament because you come into a lot of you know, to put it nicely, rugged truths that you have to kind of grapple with. And if you wanted to put it not very nicely, some very jarring, kind of almost provocative truths that you have to deal with. So today I just wanted to ask the question, have you ever been rejected? Have you ever felt the cold sting of rejection? Maybe you've just felt it in a more subtle way. Maybe it's been through a romance, maybe it's been through a friendship, maybe it's been in your marriage or your relationships, but have you ever been rejected? Has anyone not been rejected? Maybe that's a better question. Oh, good. <laughs> Sally's saying no. We'll, we'll talk to you later. Um, so I just want to tell you a story about a small boy. So as a small boy, he's making his way to the school library. He's relatively new to the school. He's only been there, uh, you know, a relatively little while, but there's a group of other boys, slightly older, and they're walking along, and as they pass by him, he's never really had anything to do with them, he's never said anything to them, and he hears this comment, that kid there, what a loser. And then his friends all agree and keep walking along laughing. Sort of like rejection, you know? And it's like, why, why, why would there be that type of rejection? They didn't even really know each other. Uh, that small boy goes to a school camp. And for some reason, that school camp that was supposed to be really cool and great and wonderful ends up being a little bit of a nightmare because everyone pretty much hates that small boy. I don't really know why, they just do. And it sort of culminates where a teacher grabs this small boy at one point by the throat and holds him up against the window and proceeds to swear and yell and carry on at him. That small boy grows to be a young man. He gets a girlfriend. He loses the girlfriend for some reason. The girlfriend rejects him in a pub one night He sees that girlfriend and he asks, maybe rather drunkenly, why do you hate me? And she says, because you're a loser. The cold sting of rejection. Well, there's another small boy. His mother loves him very much. And one day he says to his mother, why did you name me what you named me? And his mother says, well, that's quite a story, son. It starts with your father and your stepmother, you see, before you were born, your stepmother and I had conflict about some things and it kind of built and built until one day she'd had enough and she went to your father and insisted that she'd had enough of me. She had been abusing me up till this time. She had been bullying me and when she went to him, I was hoping for some protection. He provided none and he was basically telling her to... Do whatever she wanted. So I'd had enough, I ran out into the desert. I was pregnant with you, and I thought I was going to die. But it was better than going back to that place. And as you know, you as that little boy, you grew. You were born, you grew. As you know, I did end up back with that family. You yourself grew. That family had another little baby. And one day, you being the teenage boy that you are, you were teasing that little boy. And that mother, your stepmother, saw that and insisted that I be driven out. Your father was very upset by that. And he was visited by God. And God told him that that was what was to happen, Let her be driven out. Driven out into the desert. Now, it was a difficult thing for your father, but he, he went along with it. He went along with it. And he even said, this is God, God even said to your father, don't be concerned about that boy and your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her. So who am I talking about? I think you already worked out. Ishmael. So last week we heard about Hagar and we heard about Ishmael. And I don't know, but it should really have shocked you in many ways. It should have like shocked you from the top of your head, down to your socks and then all the way back up again. Should have jarred you a bit. Maybe you've seen it before and you've come up with a few rationalizations on what's happening there. I don't know. But you remember Tim at the end of the sermon, he said he was angry. Well, we got together on Thursday night, Tim, Ben, Rick, Andrew was there too. It was great having you along. And we just talked through it. We talked through other things as well, of course, but we talked through it. Because I think it is shocking, isn't it? Like, I haven't missed anything, have I? Maybe I put it in a slightly different way. Maybe I've put you into the shoes of Ishmael. Maybe I've put you into the shoes of Hagar a bit more than you're willing to go before. But like, I haven't missed anything, have I? Everyone's looking at me. No one's. I don't think I have. I mean, you think about it. You... You wouldn't even probably drive an animal out in the desert. You wouldn't do that to your dog, would you? So what's going on here? Don't be concerned about that boy and your slave. God says, do whatever, do whatever you want. So imagine Ishmael. Imagine if this was one of your friends and he's telling you this had happened in modern times. You'd be going, oh, wow, me too, mate, me too. You know, he would be a uh, sure, I don't know it's more sort of about women, but he would be a sure thing. His mother sure would be a me too candidate, wouldn't she? And like, there'd be such outrage. But imagine Ishmael growing up, like, who am I? Like, who do I belong to? Why have I been rejected? And that's why I decided to name today Ishmael, the rejected. And that's why I wanted us to get into the shoes a little bit, or the sandals of Ishmael and his mother Hagar. That's why I put out this poll, this Ishmael poll. There's a few more people have answered the call this time, but it basically was asking, what is your general impression of Ishmael compared to Abraham? Now, the reason I put the poll out there was because as I was preparing for this and as I was looking at Ishmael and Hagar, I realized that up to this time, Ishmael always had a little bit of a kind of negative connotation in my appreciation of who he was. I always just thought, no, oh, Ishmael, I don't think i will ever name my son Ishmael. I might name him Abraham if I ever had a son. You know what I mean? I was just like, nah, not, not real keen. And then as I started to think about it, I was like, hang on a minute. Why? Why do I feel that way? So I put the poll out just to see where everyone else was at. We didn't have, uh, I wouldn't use this as a, you know, statistical kind of verification of other types of research, but at least it gives us a bit of an indication. And as you can see, hopefully from the poll there, most people were either kind of neutral or a bit negative towards him. And I think the ones, to be honest, that have said they're positive, it's because we've had deeper conversations. (laughs) But prior to that, you probably would have felt the same. It's changed in the last month, yeah. So, again, why? Why do people get rejected? Why do we reject people? Why do we, in a sense, reject Ishmael in the Bible? Why do we go, not that, positive towards Ishmael? What has Ishmael done in the Bible that makes him unlikable, unpopular, and not the favourite boy's name for Christians everywhere? I mean, compare Abraham to Ishmael. What has Abraham done? We've got to know him a little bit better in our series, haven't we? Well, one, he just kicked a son, his son and mother, out into the desert twice. We know that he arranged for his wife to go into the bedroom of another man in order to save his skin. There's all these things, and yet we're still overall relatively favourable towards Abraham. And I think this points towards the way our minds think and our hearts think. Oftentimes we have feelings towards people that are not actually grounded in reality. They're grounded in what we think of that person. They're grounded on probably tiny little things. In this case, one incident as a teenager. I mean, who hasn't teased before as a, as a, as a teenager? And you smear it forever. Oftentimes these impressions that we have, maybe it's just the way someone looks. They come in and they look a bit ugly. Or maybe it's, we think they're a bogan. Like, be careful, because bogan, that word kind of sounds cool and it's kind of funny to say, but it has connotations. You're saying, Bogan, this person down here, or I'm up here. And I think what I've found as I've read through this, I've just been confronted with my own tendency towards prejudice. Prejudice is literally pre-judging, pre-judging. Not judging with all the facts, not judging with all the actions, not judging justly, actually judging judgmentally. So why why does Ishmael get rejected? We've got a bit of a case study here in rejection. Why does he get rejected by his dad? Like we said, is it because he did something horribly wrong and the father being a loving father had to eject Ishmael in order to protect the rest of the family? Is it that? No, it's not. He is ejected and rejected because his wife, Abraham's wife, has a big issue which, by the way, I remember was her idea all along. Ishmael would not exist if it wasn't for Sarah. And so you think about these things and you kind of go, hmm, why is he being rejected? And it seems like the trajectory of his life is one of rejection. For example, Genesis 16. Now, I know people want to look at their Bibles and that's cool, but I really want you to try and listen to me because... The nature of this story is it spreads over like six, seven, eight chapters. So what I'm going to say to everyone is after this, go away and read it, delve into it, saturate yourselves in it, struggle with it. But for now, if we could just listen, because otherwise you can tend to get distracted from the flow of my argument here and I guess the flow of where I'm trying to go. So I just appreciate that if you could. Um, uh, But let's just think about this for a minute. So in terms of rejection, why the rejection? Genesis 16, 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, to Hagar, you must go back to your mistress and submit to her mistreatment. So you can kind of handle Abraham doing dodgy things and you can handle Sarah doing dodgy things. But now on the surface of it, it appears that God is telling a woman to go back into an abusive situation. And I can tell you right now that this text has been used in exactly that way. Go back and suffer for Jesus kind of thing. Now, remember, Hagar would have told all this stuff to Ishmael. Ishmael would know all about this. This is Ishmael's background. This is Ishmael's legacy. So is God asking something cruel of Hagar? Again, this should shock us. I'm not not trying to set this up for dramatic effect. If you want to be serious about the Bible, then be serious about this. Be serious about grappling with this. Is Ishmael being rejected or cruelly treated by God? Is Hagar... And then in Genesis 21, when Sarah saw the son mocking the one Hagar, the Egyptian had born to Abraham, so she, she saw that happening. So she says to Abraham, drive out this slave with her son. Drive it out. Drive drive them out. Drive, drive out this slave. It's very kind of reminding of Abraham of the fact that this is a lowly slave. For the son of the slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. And then God says to Abraham, don't be concerned about the boy and your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. So it's now like God's almost, it seems like he's just become complicit. He's like, yep, do that. Send him out into the desert. And the reason this is so important for us is because we go to the Bible to find out about God Almighty. We go to the Bible to meet God Almighty. We go to find out about his characteristics, his traits, his likes, dislikes. And then we see this happening and we go, well, what's to stop God from rejecting you? What's to stop God from doing that kind of thing to you? What stops you from being rejected for a teasing incident or being rejected maybe even before you were born like Ishmael? So in church history, scholars have often struggled with this idea of people being rejected by God. And they've even come up with a doctrine called the doctrine of the reprobate in inverted commas a great doctrine. And it ties into Romans 9, it ties into Ephesians 1, it ties into events like this. And essentially the reprobate is either God passing over a great mass of humanity, so choosing deliberately before the beginning of time, before these people have done anything, good or bad, passing over them, not wanting to say them, or deliberately condemning them to hell. So this is a, inverted commas, great doctrine of the church. It's a doctrine that's been there for a very long time. And again, it's easy to have these esoteric, well, maybe not even esoteric, it's easy to have these doctrines as academic knowledge, but think, look around. Think what this is saying. There are some people here that may well have been passed over before the beginning of time. It might be your child. It might be someone that you love. And of course, no matter how you then build up a great doctrine of God's sovereignty or our incapacity to understand goodness and justice and trying to push it to the side there a bit, of course, that's then going to bring in a certain attitude towards who God is. Rejected forever. And again, there's many reasons for this doctrine. But I've really, I guess I'm coming more and more to the conclusion, even as we just saw with Hagar and Ishmael, Coming more and more to the conclusion that we as a church often don't take the Bible seriously enough and we don't grapple, and we don't ask questions. And I really want to encourage you to ask hard questions. I really want you to say, when I get to the questions at the end, are you really saying that Ishmael and Hagar were rejected by God? Is that what the Bible's really saying? I mean, you must, as people of God, have come to the Bible in the past and found things that concern you, haven't you? Things that you find hard things that you struggle with, things that you just, well, things that you know atheists just go to town on? Well, what I want to say to you is when that happens, I want you to go deeper. I don't want you to ignore it. I want you to grapple with it. I want you to pray to God through his Holy Spirit and go, Lord, I've got a problem here. That was good. I'll arrange that for dramatic effect. I've got a problem here, Lord, and I would like to go deeper with you. Remember our little catch cry? Do you want to trust more deeply? Do you want to hope more deeply? Do you want to love more deeply? If you do, then you need to struggle here. You need to go deeper. You need to have a spirit led down on your knees, deep reading of that text and the rest of the Bible. You need to understand the Bible in its totality. The Psalms tell us in Psalm 119 verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. Don't try and split it up and take one bit without taking into consideration all the other bits. Oftentimes, this kind of tradition of the reprobate gets built up because people won't face the reprobate. They won't look into the eyes of the reprobate. They pretty much ignore it. They talk about how grand and wonderful it is to be the chosen and the elect, but they will not talk about the reprobate much, bit uncomfortable. But all they have to do is put themselves into the shoes of the reprobate for just a moment and they will realise very quickly what that actually feels like. So we should struggle and we should come to the text. So before we go there, though, and you know me well enough, I'm going to build this up to something, I hope, now that I've taken you into the deep valley of despair about God's word. Um, but no, I'm being honest. This is, we're going to be raw, right? So have, before we talk about being rejected, have you ever been the rejecter? Because when we read Hagar and Ishmael or when we look at the Me Too movement, oftentimes we're seeing ourselves not as the... Uh, as the the, the oppressor, we're seeing ourselves as the victim. We're empathising with the victim. But have you ever been a rejector? So back to boy number one. I don't know if you guessed who it is. That's right. That was me, right? And I understood rejection. I understood what it was to be super popular. And then I understood what it was to be last one on the list. That's right. That was me. So guess what? One day this boy is sitting in class, probably early high school years, and a girl who's not a very popular girl, and I'm like, I'm, I'm actually ashamed. Now, I was an impulsive child, and oftentimes I'll just do things just without really thinking too much about it. That's my strength and my weakness. Um, and we were sitting in graphics, and I noticed her get up, and there was a little puddle on her seat. So I didn't know whether she had problems with, in that area in terms of, you know, Bladder control, whatever. But I saw it as a little kid. You know what I did? Instead, no, and I could see that she was trying to go to the teacher and the teacher was trying to, you know, be, keep it quiet. You know what I did? I laughed. And when I laughed, everyone else saw it. So, and like, I am ashamed of that. Like, I just, I... so I went from being rejected to being a rejecter. You know, there was another girl in our class and she was a Christian girl. I used to see her at church sometimes, but she was not like me. She was a nerdy Christian. I was a cool Christian. No, I wasn't. I was just a loser. Like, I was the loser. I was the compromised Christian. Not, she was uncompromising and all my friends were one day teasing her. And then I started like throwing in a few comments on my own. I'm just ashamed, like, from the rejected to the rejecter. Why, why, why did I become the rejecter? Why do we reject people? Well, those girls, that girl in that moment, she had no utility for me. Like, she couldn't make me more popular. She didn't make me feel like I wanted to like her. You know, when we like someone, that's a good, pleasurable feeling. She never did that for me. There are other more popular girls, good-looking girls that I would have really liked to have gone out with, and if they'd have done it, I'd, no way I would have done it. I would have been the perfect gentleman. I would have like, Let me like, you know, let me shield you kind of. But because she was rejected, because she wasn't that good looking, I was like, huh. This is the nature of our rejection. And I'm ashamed. And if I wasn't a Christian, who knows what type of rejecting I'd be doing now. There was nothing about it that made me feel like liking her. And there are people that we just don't like sometimes. And oftentimes, again, it's like, well, if I don't like them, they're of no use to me. So I don't have to treat them that nicely. We see this all the time, all the time. You see people that are kind of, I don't know, they're just normal people. And then suddenly there was someone who's popular or famous and all of a sudden they're changing, they're doing this and doing that. You know, I've seen many conversations in workplaces about the boss that are not that healthy. When the boss comes in, oh, can I get you a coffee? As in to the boss. Again, because they have utility. They're useful to us. We like them. Ishmael has no utility. He once had utility. Sarah had said to Abraham, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave, perhaps through her I can build a family. Abraham agreed. So Abraham, uh, Abraham's wife Sarah took Hagar, the Egyptian slave, gave her to her husband, Abram as a wife for him. This happened about 10 years after Abraham had been in Canaan. So think about that. Ishmael is incredibly important. He will be the heir. And for 13 years, he is the heir. But then Isaac comes along and all of a sudden he's nothing. Not only is he nothing, he is purposely and almost maliciously rejected, pushed out into the desert. I mean, can you imagine doing that to one of your own kids? Even for those that are mixed families and it's a stepchild. Like, can you imagine that? Drive them out. And can you imagine being that child and you're going, oh, far out. And then you hear of a conversation, a divine intervention of God and your father, and God is going, do what she wants. Drive them out. This would have shocked you. So I put this up here. It should shock us when we seriously consider the text. Why do we feel that way towards Ishmael and other people that we have rejected? And does God reject like we reject? Does he see no use in Ishmael and Hagar, so he pushes them away? Does he see no use in the reprobate, so he pushes them away? Or even worse, in in the terms of double predestination, he has deliberately, for his own glory from before the beginning of time, intended that those people would die and go to hell for his own glory, just to show you how powerful he is. Now, I know I'm speaking not with respectful tones there, but that's probably because I don't respect that doctrine that much. I respect the people who often hold to it, and I understand why they hold to it. But is that what we're really saying, team? And you know, my brothers and sisters, I have many good Calvinist friends. Um, I still listen to a lot of Calvinist podcasts here and there, maybe less now. But is that what we're really saying, team? And I know you'd say, "Oh, well, we wouldn't put it that way, Adrian. I understand. But like, that is how it's put by John Calvin himself. So does, is that what's happening? And I have not addressed this issue before. You, uh, before. I've deliberately left it alone but now I've started to see some of the damage done by it because you do inevitably come away with a certain attitude about God Almighty. And in your dark moment, in that dark moment, that dark night of the soul, that faith crisis, it's like where maybe you haven't performed the way you should have and you've now got some sin issues and you're wondering whether God's going to come for you and this doctrine comes into your head. Guess what you're going to think? He's not coming for me. And you know what you'll think then? Well, if that's who God is, he probably doesn't exist at all. And I'm punching it out. We've seen it happen. We have seen it happen. Does God reject? You know why this passage jars us so much? It's not actually just because we're, you know, we're not understanding God's sovereignty. And it's not because we're not reading the Bible enough. It is because we're reading the Bible. That's why it jars us. Every time we read the Bible, New Testament and old, and I grant you, there's probably more of this kind of stuff. Well, no, no, that's not true. New Testament, Old Testament, you'll see God's love. For example, Romans 5, 7 to 8. God proves his own love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And it says in the previous verse, rarely will someone die for a just person. So God's not waiting like other gods for you to be perfect and to bring the right amount of sacrifices. He has come for you. He dies for you while you're a sinner. Then we've got these other verses. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life? God loves his enemies. God asks us to love his enemies. And then you have the doctrine of the reprobation. And it's like, so what's God doing with his enemies there? He has predetermined that they'll go to hell. What's he doing with Ishmael? Ishmael's pretty useless. Get rid of him. And yet we're reading stuff like this. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son. And so it's not that we're not reading the Bible enough, it's that we're reading it too much and these doctrines just don't fit. They just don't fit. Now, I know there are verses there and it will take a long time to fit them, uh, uh, to contour them to these bigger themes of the Bible. I'm not going to do that today, but maybe we can do it another time. My point here is that drive out this slave with her son, jars us for that reason. So has God really rejected? Now, this is where our pre-understanding comes in. I don't know if you're familiar with the term pre-understanding, It's a hermeneutical term. It's sort of my area of study now. So basically, we all have a history. We all have a history. Uh, We all have experience. We have experiential history. Okay. So we have things that have happened to us. People often call it bias, but bias is a negative thing. Pre-understanding is just simply the accumulation, the aggregation of all your experiences, your interactions, and so forth. So you can imagine when you read this particular passage about Ishmael, and say you are a very strong Calvinist, so you come to this passage and you look at it and go, yeah, that's about right. If you're a more, say, traditionalist or Arminian or non-Calvinist, you look at it and go, whoa, what? Your pre-understanding dictates how you will read this. And while it is the pure and lovely and wonderful and life-giving word of God that has a rugged faithfulness about it as it presents the truth about humanity, while it is all that, we have our own prejudice. We have our own pre-understanding that interacts. And we've got to be open. And you know why that is? Is because you can't just read the Bible without the help of the Holy Spirit. You have got to open yourself up. You've got to humble yourself. You've got to break yourself in a sense and say, Lord, Lord, I know when I'm reading this, I've got prejudice. I've got bias. I've got pre-understanding. Please help me to understand. And when you do, when you go for the deep reading, when you go for the deep reading, you begin to see who God really is. And I, can, I, I just know, I know because it's in me, I know it would be in all of you. You have certain pictures, frameworks of understanding about who God is and they're just wrong and they've got to be broken down. But they're not broken down unless you're in God's word. They're not broken down unless you will open up yourself and say, Lord, Lord, please help me. Holy Spirit, move through me. Help me understand. Is God really rejecting Or is there something else going on? You know, if I saw my lovely wife, I heard this illustration from a past the other day and it's a great thing. I know Kerry so well. Uh, I love her. She loves me. We've been together for a long time, over 20 years. And if I just saw her on the other side of the street one day and she didn't know that I saw her and she was like kicking some homeless dude on the street, I'd be like, whoa, what is going on there? But because I know her so well, I'm not, my pre-understanding of her, right? My pre-understanding is going to kick in. As I read that situation, I'm going to go, something else. Something else must be going on. Maybe that guy just tried to rape someone or something. I don't know. You know, you'd start asking more questions. We too need to be the same. When we see something in God's word, we need to go, something else must be going on here because of everything else I'm reading. When I read about Jesus Christ on the cross and his incredibly sacrificial love, something else must be going on. And this is a great guiding principle when you find texts like this. Think of the cross, think of Jesus, think of the ultimate revelation in Jesus, and then go, what else is going on here? And as you then go deeper, we begin to see some things. First of all, and we'll just, as we get to the tail end here, I just want to finish off with a couple of things here. But first of all, as we read this account more closely, just consider who Hagar is. She is a slave without hope. She's brought into Abraham's household. And when she has that Experience of being pushed out into the desert. What happens to her? Tell me from revision. What happens to her? She's died. What happens? God intervenes in a divine way. Has anyone wanted to see God? Like, have any of you really yearned to see God? Come on, like, I think it's a Christian thing, isn't it? Like, you just like, you'd like to see him, wouldn't you? I would like to see him. We have not yet, as we saw in our Bible verse, we've not yet seen him as he really is. I would love to see him. I would love to speak with him. It's all possible because of what Jesus has done on the cross that we can enter into that relationship. I would love to say, I remember Philip Yancey wrote a book called Rumors of Another World. And he tells a story, I think it's in the paragraph at the start, or one of the paragraphs at the start. He's sitting there and it's a beautiful, cool, not cold evening. The sun's going down, the flowers, the smells. And he thinks, if it's going to happen, it'll happen now. (laughs) As in seeing the face of God. And it doesn't happen. (laughs) And he talks about that. He launches into his book, Rumors of Another World. Hagar sees God and she says God sees me and God hears me and God actually says name your son Ishmael and name the rejected one as Ben brought out so well last week God hears or another way of putting it is God pays attention God pays attention so God has directly intervened in the life of this slave In this place, Hagar says, I have actually, have I actually seen the one who sees me? Hagar says, Adonai, which is God of seeing. Hagar and her son should have just died in the desert, and they would have, if God hadn't intervened. And God does say go back, but there is no other event or abuse situation that we can see that is recorded after that. And I have to be really, really clear here that if anyone has used this passage to tell a wife that's being abused in a domestic abuse situation to go back, they are dead wrong. This is a specific time, a specific account. God has directly intervened. God wants us as men, God wants us as the church to intervene. And we can trust that if that doesn't occur, that at some point in the future, God will intervene. God has already intervened on the cross. And as here with Hagar, imagine Hagar going, but oh, I just saw God. <laughs> and there must have been some sort of glow about it. We can read between the lines a bit to know that Sarah and Abraham go, well, we need to, we need to back off. I don't know that for sure, but I think it's there. And, and you know, this is the thing as well with the Me Too movement, I respect it and I think it's great. But there are many women in the world, in fact, the majority of women and the majority of abused and children and so forth, they can't get out. They can't go to the police in a just society. We should be thankful that we have a Judeo-Christian ethic that pretty much invented the police force and a sense of justice. There are many women who can't get out. What hope do they have? The hope that they have is like Hagar, that God sees, God pays attention. There will be justice and there will be deliverance. And even if that deliverance is through death, death has lost its sting. This is just the smallest part of life. But in the meantime, we as the church, we should do everything we can. We should fight for the abuse. We should stand against the uh, the abuser. God sees. God pays attention. And then the angel of the Lord says, name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. And then we've got the next bit in verse 12 where this guy's going to be a wild donkey. His hands going to be against everyone. I suspect this is where the negativity has come from. But if you were Ishmael, would you trust your brothers from then on? <laughs> of course not. Of course you're going to live in opposition. But isn't it interesting at the end of Ishmael's life, where do we find him? We find him with his brother Isaac doing what? Burying burying his father together. What a picture. So I believe this verse 12 here out of Genesis 16 is actually prophetic. It's God saying, yep, there's going to be this kind of antagonism and stuff. Some people have tried to link Ishmael to Muslims. And so I can tell you now, it's not historically verified. You can't do it. We have no records doing that. Some have tried desperately. Um, it's just not true. Uh, the, the, our, our, you know, Islamic faith and people like that, they need to know Jesus. They need to know that someone will not reject them. They're not to be rejected by us. So something else is going on. Isaac was the son of the promise. What promise? That he would be blessed and no one else would be? No, that he would be the one that would carry the seed. So he would be the one that would carry the offspring through whom everyone else in the world will be blessed. So oftentimes people automatically equate what happened with Isaac in terms of Isaac being chosen as, oh, he's chosen for salvation, he's chosen for blessing, no one else is. No, 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 anyone who would come by faith to the people of Israel, they could actually be grafted in. And they too, if they were to bless the people of Israel, as in the people that were going to bring God's seed, uh, who we know to be Jesus later on, then they too would be blessed. So we see over and over again, Um, and I think my computer thing here has failed, but anyway, we see over and over again this idea that God's got a people, he wants to bring the Lord Jesus, and then, can you click the next slide for me, Becky? Or is it frozen? Oh, no, this is wrong, sorry, bear with me. Sorry, there we go, I didn't realize it was still going up there. So we see uh, Paul thousands of years later in Galatians. And what he says is he takes one word. And this is what I mean about the deep reading. He takes one word from Genesis, offspring. And he goes, you know what? That word is not actually plural. It's singular. So not seeds, but seed. And he goes, that's about Jesus. And that verse is about Isaac, the people of Israel, bringing Jesus. And then people can believe in Jesus. They can come into the family of God, be grafted in and be just as chosen as the chosen ones. That's how it all works. So again, I ask you, go to that deep reading. When you're struggling with stuff in the scripture, go to that deep reading. And here's where I want to finish. We don't worship a God who rejects. We actually worship a God who was rejected. I was reading this morning as I was going through Luke, just as a part of my daily reading plan, Luke 23, which is the crucifixion. And you just see rejection smack you in the face. Over and over again, in Luke 23, 1 2, they begin to accuse him, Jesus. The whole assembly rises up against him. Jesus, he's done nothing. Nothing but heal and preach and bring love and hope and restoration. Then Herod and his soldiers treat him with contempt. They mock him. Then the crowd all cries together, get this man away, give us Barabbas. Imagine that, that sting of rejection. Pilate wants to release Jesus, but they just keep shouting, crucify, crucify. Louder and louder. When he's finally taken out to Golgotha to the hill of the skull, you would think it would stop there. You'd think there'd be some pity from people looking on at this man who's been brutalized. No, they keep mocking. They keep yelling. And you know what he says? I reject all of you. I hate you. That's what we'd say. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Isn't that amazing? Jesus rejected and mocked for you and for every man, woman, boy, and child, even the unborn ones, every single one. What a message we have. We don't have a God of rejection. But we have to, with our free will, come to Him and say, Here I am. I put aside all these prejudices. I put aside all these biases. I put aside all these pre-understandings, and I come to you. And I was thinking, as I finish here, I want to finish every sermon with sila. So people probably know sila would recognise it from the Psalms. Most scholars believe that sila means pause, think. It might have been a musical break. Pause, think. I feel like this has been missing from my sermons a bit. I feel like I take you down, bring you to Jesus kind of thing, which I love doing, and I love doing it myself in the preparation. But I feel like there needs to be an element of what now? Selah. Okay. And this is, you know, something oftentimes you could even just pause in the Psalms and pray through and think about, but Sila. If we dislike, if we hate, if we won't forgive, If we don't see utility in someone, if we see someone as a bogan, you need to understand one clear thing. God is between you and the rejected one. The cross, the thorns, the nails, the spear, it stands between you and the rejected one. So how can we reject? How can we reject those who God has accepted and died for? How can we do that? Stop it. If you are a believer in reprobation and you think that somehow makes God more grand, you need to go to a deep reading. If you really think God has rejected a mass of people, then please put yourself there for a while. Please study the scriptures to see if you can find a clear reading on the reprobate. It's time to remove the doctrinal calcification of traditional readings and approach the living word asking for insight. And finally, if you are the rejected and the abused, you're truly the Ishmael and the Hagar, then God hears, God sees. And I tell you, get out if you can. Get out of that abusive situation if you can. Get help. Get help from a church. Go to the police if you can trust the police. Find a church that truly loves. Find a church that will really help you. But if you can't, if you are stuck, and let me tell you, there is a day coming. God sees your abuser. There is a day coming of justice. Selah.